How are you? Welcome here. Glad to be here. Really? Did you look at the sermon title? Come on. I hope you're uh, at the end of this, you still feel that you are glad to have been here. Um, I'm glad you're here. You may have woken up this morning and thought, man, I'm just looking forward to going to church and having one of those really good, uplifting, positive messages. And then you came and you saw hell. You thought, man, this would have been one of those good Sundays maybe just to stay in bed. So I'll give you five seconds for anybody who wants to make their way out. Got five seconds, then we're locking the doors. Maybe, uh, maybe you invited someone here this morning. I know in the first service, um, there, was, there was a new family that had been invited here this morning. And, and I don't know if the person who invited them thought, oh, this was a, this was a bad idea. It's a, a bad Sunday to bring a friend to church, to visit our warm, loving church. If you saw people out in the foyer walking around looking lost and a little shell-shocked, they were probably people in the first service here. Um, nobody wants to think about hell. Nobody wants to talk about hell. Nobody wants to believe in hell. No one wants to preach about hell, trust me. I did not have a fun week. Um, and because of that, fewer people are thinking about it. Fewer people are talking about it. Fewer Christians are believing in it. Some whole churches have rejected the whole teaching or doctrine or concept of hell. Fewer pastors are speaking on it because it's hard. And yet it's important to address this for a few reasons. Because as the author of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 2 said, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of us all, therefore the living should take this to heart. Did you hear what he said? He's like, I, I know I'm going to be a bit of a Debbie Downer here, but um, we all love to go to weddings more than funerals. But he said it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a wedding. Because at a funeral, we're reminded that Death is coming to all of us. And whatever it brings with it, we have to face. We cannot escape that, and so it's best that we think about that now while we are living. There's another important reason to, to have this discussion this morning. It's because Jesus had a lot to say about it. Nobody spoke more in the scriptures about hell than Jesus. In fact, he had more to say about it than all other biblical authors combined. Jesus Yes, that Jesus, that little, all the children come unto me, Jesus, that die on the cross for the sins of the world, Jesus, that he who is without sin cast the first stone, Jesus. That Jesus had more to say on this topic in more vivid, graphic, strong language than anybody else in the scriptures. And if Jesus takes this seriously, then we have to take hell seriously as well. But before we do that, before we launch into this um, conversation, I think we just need to pause and realize what we're doing here. You know, forbid that this just be like a theological exercise, an intellectual exercise. What we're talking about here this morning has real, potentially horrifying implications for real people. Real people. People that you love very much, potentially. Real people that have real destinies. And so let's not forget that as we have this conversation here together in the morning, the real implications 
of this. So the question that was given to me by someone, some very mean soul out in this church, was how can a loving God send people to hell? You ever asked yourself that question? Come on, you ever asked yourself that question? Of course you have. Anybody who's ever heard about hell, thought about hell, heard about a God and that he was loving, thought about that, has had to wrestle to some degree with this question. How can a loving God send people to hell? And some people haven't been able to reconcile those two things, and so they've just discarded with one or the other. They've maybe said, you know what, I get this whole loving God thing, I see Jesus very loving, I don't see how that can fit with this place or this state, this horrible reality called hell, so I don't believe in that. I'm just rejecting that, embracing a loving God. And others have said, well, if that's what Jesus has to say, if that's what the Bible teaches, then I don't really know that that's the sort of God that's loving or that I want to follow. And so they've maybe just rejected God or the biblical um, uh, person, the biblical person of God. And, and we don't want to do either of those. So we're going to wrestle with this question here this morning. And I just want to take a few minutes to give a bit of a summary of what the Bible has to say about hell because it, it could take a whole sermon series just to plumb the depth of what the Bible has to say about hell. There's a lot there. And we can only just kind of take a scan of, of what the Bible has to say. So we want to do that and then we want to see how that relates to the character of God and how it relates to us and how we live ourselves. Uh, what is hell? What is hell? Is, is that hell? That's the picture of hell I have or at least I had growing up. It was a place, you know, this is one of those medieval paintings, and if, and if you object to me putting this up there, then deal with it. Okay, that's all I'm gonna say. I'm not gonna apologize, just deal with it. Um, actually, I'm being kind of nice because I Google, don't, don't image search hell. It's disturbing, okay? As people throughout the ages have tried to put into picture form this place or this state. And this is one of the tamest pictures I could find. Most of the other ones there would have required a barf bag in front of you because it's pretty grotesque. But here you have what I presume is the devil eating a person, snakes coming out of his ears, I guess, eating other people, flames. It's a pretty horrible vision of this place. And so maybe that, that kind of represents the picture I had uh, of, of what hell is, and, and there are various pictures out there. Some people have thought that hell uh, is a place for the souls of the wicked to be purified, to kind of put in their time, to be cleansed, and then before they can come into the holy presence of God. Other people like Dante, sorry. Dante's uh, Inferno, right, which is kind of like this. Uh, he pictured hell as this, this downward spiral of, of um, agony, of misery, with different levels of suffering where snakes are biting uh, people, people are tormented by beasts, they're showered with icy rain, they're trapped in rivers of blood or flaming tombs. Some are even steeped in pools of human excrement. Right? And this is how he depicts hell. Others like C.S. Lewis, who some of you have read, depicts it a little less creepy terms. Um, it's just kind of this dark, gloomy, miserable place where people fade almost into non-entity. Others have a bit of a happier view of hell, maybe like the band ACDC. Anybody still listening to that? Like, move on, guys. Some guys, you just need to move on. You need to get a haircut. You need to get rid of that mullet. You need to move on. But ACDC, um, one of their songs 
has the lyrics, hell ain't a bad place to be, it's where all our friends are, right? And so this is kind of the, which could very well be true, but um, it, it, kind of the vision of hell that my friend Ben back in high school, he just couldn't believe why I'd want to be a Christian. Why I'd want to go to be with God if, to be with God meant to wear a robe and wings and sing choir songs for all eternity. He'd rather go to that place where it was like an eternal party with boozing and women. That sounded better to him. And so he, he kind of liked the idea of hell. It's kind of the ACDC version. Or maybe Rob Bell. Some of you have heard of, of uh, Rob Bell who has spoken on this issue who views hell not as some other place, some other time, but this place, this time. Hell is really all, all, all the worst of what takes place, human experience on earth, genocide, rape, all the injustice here, that's hell. And so there's these different visions of what hell is. What does the Bible have to say about hell? And I, th- there are so many texts, but I just want to read from Matthew chapter 25. Uh, if you brought your Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew 25. This is the longest section of, of scripture on the topic, at least from the words, uh, from the mouth of Jesus. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, verse 31. Jesus says that when the Son of Man comes, now that's a title for him, it's one of his titles, talking about himself. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So just looking at this little depiction, what Jesus has to say here in this passage about hell, we can ascertain a few things. First of all, that hell is a real place or a real state. You know, he didn't come into the world and go, guys, you heard about this place. Other people have been telling you about it called hell, eternal punishment. Don't worry about it. Not a thing. Um, he, He affirms that there is a place, there is a state that he calls hell that the wicked will receive on the day of judgment. And he's the he's the perfect just judge, and he will judge and he will separate all people between two destinies. Two groups that have two destinations. 
Heaven, the kingdom of God, or hell, the kingdom apart from God. So he says hell is a real place or a state and it's a place for the wicked. We'll unpack that a little bit later. He says it's a place of punishment. That's the word he uses. They will go away to eternal punishment. This is the word we find again and again because some have thought maybe hell is a bit of a corrective place, kind of like purgatory. You go, you put in your time, you burn off your sins. It purifies you. And the Bible doesn't give any suggestion that it's about correction, it's about punishment, it's not about restoration, it's about God's retribution. And so you have this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He, being God, will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Okay, so, so who are the wicked, okay? The wicked, those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse nine, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out of the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So it's a place of punishment, Jesus says, which means it entails suffering. It's a place of, or a state of suffering, misery, agony, and Jesus and all the other biblical authors, they try to paint this picture using language that we can understand. So they they use these images and and you find a few of them again and again. The image of fire, a lake of fire, burning sulfur, fiery furnace. Hell is like a fire that doesn't end. It's a place of outer darkness. In fact, the very verse before the the, the passage we read in, in Matthew 25, verse 30 at the conclusion of a different parable Jesus concludes that in verse 30 by saying that the, the, the worthless servants will be thrown outside into the darkness where there, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's more imagery. Fire, utter darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. All an attempt to try to paint a picture of the torment and the suffering that is a reality in this place or in this state. So it's a place of suffering Jesus speaks of it as if it's an eternal place. This is the word he uses, everlasting punishment. Those that enter the kingdom of God, the righteous, experience everlasting life. Those who must depart from God experience everlasting punishment. Now, some have looked at some of these passages, including the one earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, which... Uh, where where Jesus says, you know, don't fear him who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. And and, and they hear the word like destroy, and one of the interpretations that um, is out there is that uh, maybe hell is a place where people are destroyed and that they cease to exist. They're annihilated. Uh, And so their death is eternal, everlasting in, in, in that they cease to exist for all eternity. And that would be, that would be wonderful. That would be better than an eternal place of misery and suffering. Um, The word destroy, the word destroy used here a few times in reference to hell doesn't mean, it's the word, it's the Greek word apolumi which doesn't mean uh, that something will be annihilated out of existence. It's the word that means that something becomes utterly ruined, okay? So that it's like a a house that's just totally destroyed. A wall that's pushed over and all the the pieces 
scatter. It's, has anybody ever totaled a car here? Anybody? Anybody ever totaled a car? Good for you. And you're, two, Marilyn, two. Good for you. Anybody, can, can anybody beat two? Anybody? I want to know who not to drive with, okay? <laughs> um, so when you total a car, it means it's, it's just, it's not usable for its intended purpose, right? It's just, it's of no good. It's totally repair, damage beyond repair, okay? And, and, and this is the sense of the word destroy here when it says the body and the soul will be destroyed in hell. So it seems to suggest that whatever place or state this is, it has this sort of destruction where people are utterly and totally ruined. Without any hope, without any second chances or third chances or fourth chances to repent and turn to God. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it has been appointed once for man to die and then to face judgment. So nowhere in the Bible does it ever suggest or hint at the possibility that there might be beyond death other opportunities to be right with God. Hell is the judgment of God, right? This was the verdict of God. This was the verdict of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, as the judge who sentences, condemns the wicked to this place or to this state. So there's hell. You're probably thinking, what did you do with the rest of your week, Rusty? <laughs> that was, that was kind of lame. Um, we could have trotted out one of our kindergarten kids out here and they could have painted the exact same picture, right? Uh, that's true. Maybe think, well, that, that kind of looks exactly like that picture, doesn't it? In some ways, but I, I want to give you something else to think about as we consider hell in a deeper, I think, more biblical way. Because it doesn't really align with this vision, this picture that many of us have. Uh, in this picture, Satan rules over hell. It's his playground, the devil's playground, Right? Where for all eternity, he gets to do what he loves to do best, which is torment people. For all eternity, he gets to take hot pinchers and pull flesh off of human beings as they scream for mercy, and it's a pretty horrible thing. Um, that's not how the Bible describes this place or this state. In fact, what did Jesus say back in Matthew chapter 25? He called hell a place that who prepared? That God prepared for who? For the devil and his angels, for those spiritual beings that stand in opposition to God, God created a place, a state called hell, where they will suffer, where they will be tormented. And so the Bible tells us that God rules over hell. Satan doesn't rule over hell. It is a place for Satan's torment. God rules over this place has authority over it, but at the same time, it's a place without his presence. And to me, this is kind of the truly scary thing as I contemplate this reality. The, the ultimate condemnation from the mouth of God in the scriptures is this, the words of Jesus when he speaks to the wicked, when he says, depart from me. 
That's always shown to be the worst thing anybody can hear from God. I never knew you. Depart from me. Back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he describes it in those terms. Verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. So whatever hell is, it, what, what, what makes it so miserable, so horrible, is that it's a place where God is not. Where God is absent. And so I, I think that Jesus and the other biblical writers, they, they tried to paint this picture and they used flames and they used darkness and they used weeping and gnashing of teeth to try to communicate this picture. But I don't think what they're saying is that hell is actually a place where people just sit in a cauldron of fire for all eternity. They're trying to paint a picture using these, these images, this symbolism. And so we, we can all kind of think of what utter darkness, picture utter darkness. You've all been in a place of utter darkness, haven't you? Maybe you woke up in the middle of the night and pitch black, you had no idea where you were. You had no idea how to get where you wanted to go. Darkness evokes kind of that sense of isolation, disorientation, being lost. And fire speaks to uh, the disintegration of a thing. The disintegration of a person. The falling apart, the ruin of somebody relationally, emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually, in all of these ways. Separation from God and his blessings forever, I think is the reality that all of these symbols point us to, the picture they're trying to paint. What would it be like for there to be a place where God is not? It's a place of total isolation, total disintegration, where people are totally ruined, incapable, totally. Have you ever met someone who was like, you would say that person is, they've, we'll use the word fallen apart. You ever met someone that just totally fell apart? It's like they disintegrated. Maybe some of you have been there at one point in your life. They've been ruined. This, 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 this is kind of the picture that all these images evoke someone who is incapable of giving or receiving love or joy or appreciating anything. They're trapped in misery. The Bible says that God's wrath, God's judgment, is the giving over of a person to themselves. The total giving over of a person to their own sinful desires. Romans chapter 1 describes God, God's wrath in these terms when it says in, in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth of their wickedness. So people that they didn't want God's rule in their life. Their deepest desire was not to, to honor and enjoy God, but they turned away from God. And they tried to find all of that apart from him. And what does God do? He pours out his wrath on them. How? 
Verse 14, there, or 24, therefore God gave them over to their desires. And he says it three times in succession. The wrath of God is expressed in God removing his hands and turning somebody over to their desires to let that play out into all its awful ramifications. That's how Paul describes the wrath of God, God giving a person over to their sinful desires. And so what is hell? What is hell? I, I think hell is God actively giving people up to what they have chosen. This is what Paul says here in Romans 1. God actively giving, giving up to people who have rejected God, his lordship, giving them up to what they have chosen, to go their own way, to be the master of their own fate, the captain of their soul, to get away from his control and him. Hell is God banishing a person to the regions that they have desperately tried to get into all of their lives. This is how J.I. Packer, one of kind of the preeminent Christian theologians of our day, he says, scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever worshiping him or without God forever worshiping themselves. If the thing you want most is to worship God in the beauty of his holiness, then that's what you will get. If the thing you want most is to be your own master, to be free of God's control, to be free of God's rule, to do your own thing, then the holiness of God will be an agony to you and the presence of God will be a, a terror that you will flee from, he says. So hell is people only getting in the afterlife what they strive to have here. Instead of God being master and, 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 and savior, they, them being their own masters, their own saviors. Even in this world, like I've said, we, we all experience this to a degree in our own life, right? Even in this world, it's clear that self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness makes you miserable and blind. If, if, you, if you've known truly miserable people or if you are a truly miserable person, I won't let your spouse identify you if that's you here. You're a very, miserable people are always very self-centered people. They're always pitying people. They're always blaming people. They feel miserable, but it's always somebody else's fault. Self-centeredness makes you miserable and blind. We see this play out. The more self-centered and self-absorbed and self-pitying and self-justifying people are, the more ruined they become. The more miserable they become. So what is hell? God expressing his wrath by turning people over to what they wanted. Which ends in utter misery and ruin. If what we want to do is get away from God and his holiness and his rule and his justice, then God sends us where we want to go. This, this is how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, The Great Divorce. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. 
All that are in hell, choose it. So that, that whole, that question, why, how could a loving God send people to hell is maybe not even the right way of framing the question because the word send kind of implies that this is God's unilateral choice. He's forcing something on someone that they haven't chosen or they don't want, but that's not what the, how the Bible depicts hell as God unilaterally sending people somewhere miserable that they don't want to be. It's God allowing, withdrawing himself, removing his presence and allowing them to receive what they wanted. And with all the awful ramifications of that, God turning a person over to their choice. As I, this week, I went through pretty much all the scriptures in the Bible that touch on hell or God's judgment. And, and there's something I hadn't really observed before that, that really struck me. There, in, in all of these instances, all of these descriptions of judgment, God's hell, and eternal punishment, there was one thing that was strikingly absent from all of them that surprised me and challenged my view of hell, which was very much like that picture. What was strikingly absent was that in all of these instances, the people that have to depart from the presence of God, the wicked, right? Never once do they express any repentance. Never once do they express any remorse. Never once do they ask God for mercy. Never once do they own their sin. Never once do they seek after God. Even in their judgment. Even in hell. I thought that was kind of interesting because I, I had a picture of hell and, and I think probably this is maybe the standard picture of God saying on judgment day, you, you didn't serve me, you didn't follow me, you didn't trust in Jesus Christ, you're gonna go to that awful place and someone's saying, no, I want to be with you. Uh, no, don't send me there. And God's saying, no, you had your chance, I'm sorry, you blew it, that's where you're going for all eternity and then that person spends all eternity begging God for mercy on their knees going, I want you, I want, I'm so sorry. And God's saying for all eternity, no, you had your chance, no, you had your chance, no mercy, no mercy. You know what, is that the picture you have of hell? That's the picture I had of hell, but that's not the picture of hell the Bible gives. What the Bible seems to suggest is these people for all eternity become more and more entrenched in their their pride and their unwillingness to accept responsibility and they cannot even ask God for mercy. They cannot bring themselves to repent and seek after God. Like even in that uh, parable in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus says, hey, you, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, what do they say? No, uh, well, when were you naked and I didn't clothe you? Like when were you hungry and I didn't feed you? I must have missed that, Jesus. If, if, if only I had known, I would have done it. And I don't think that's what's happening there. I think what those people are doing is they're going, it's not my fault. You, you should have made yourself more evident. They're trying to shift blame from themselves onto God. That's what they're doing. That's what happens in Luke chapter 16. Even in their judgment, they have an inability to Accept responsibility, an inability to be remorseful, an inability to desire God. Luke chapter 16 is an interesting little story. We're not 100% sure if this is a, like a parable, a story, or if it's an actual description of, of what 
is taking place even now because it speaks about a place called Hades, which the Bible speaks as, as not as hell, which is the final destination, but which is a holding place for the souls of the wicked before hell. It talks about two men in Luke 16, verse 19, a rich man and Lazarus, who was a beggar. They both die. Lazarus, the beggar, uh, gets carried away to Abraham's side to be with the righteous. The rich man, too, dies, but he uh, goes to Hades, where it says he is in torment. He looks up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so the rich man called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. See, he knows he's miserable. He hates his misery and he, and he knows it. And he wants to be, he wants to be released from his, his agony, but he will not repent. He goes on, Abraham replied, son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us is this great chasm so that, uh, uh, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, the rich man, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they uh, will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, no, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them listen to that. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead comes back to them, then surely they will listen and they will repent. Abraham says to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What's happening there? I've often thought of him, this guy begging for mercy, almost like he has a repentant heart, but it's exactly the opposite. Most commentators say that this man isn't motivated by compassion. It's not a gesture of compassion. What he's doing is he's shifting blame. He says, it's not my fault. I didn't have enough knowledge. I'm not the one to blame. If, if you would just send someone to go tell those people, then, then I'm sure that they would turn. And he says, no, 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 no. Everybody has enough knowledge to make their choice. This man is unwilling to accept responsibility for himself, for his predicament. That's the point of this story. He is no way willing to repent or seek the presence of God. You ever met someone that, or maybe you were that person that uh, was unwilling to admit their fault? And they kind of became entrenched in that? And the longer they go, the, the, the less able they are to be humble themselves? and to make it right, and to repent, and to be reconciled. The more entrenched they come in their position, the more they fight for themselves. I think what the Bible tells us is hell is that going to its completed end. This, this, is, this is how C.S. Lewis describes it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others in this life, but you are distinct from it. 
You may even criticize it in yourself or wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no one left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever and ever and ever. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which if it reaches its conclusion, its end, will be that place. Will be hell. What he's saying is it's like something going into the atmosphere. We have an atmosphere and we have a force called gravity, right? So if, 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 if a rocket goes up there is a force called gravity that seeks to pull things to the center. But if something keeps traveling away from the center, there comes a time where what happens? It hits the edge of the atmosphere. And once it leaves that atmosphere, there's no more force drawing it near the center. And whatever direction that thing is moving, once it leaves that state, it moves forever and ever and ever because there is no state there is no force. There is nothing to turn it around. It travels in that direction, away from the center forever and ever. I think that's hell. God will give us what we most, de- all this to say, God will give us, I believe, what we most deeply desire. Hell is real and God is loving And hell is fair and just. The righteous will get God, what they longed for most, and the wicked will be free from God, what they longed for most. But there is something that's not fair. There is something that's not fair. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So remember, the righteous go to eternal life and the wicked, those who turn away from God, God gives them what they want, which is a life free from God. But this says there's no one righteous, not even one person. There's no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. No one is good. This is what Paul is saying in in Ephesians chapter two when he says, as for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you used to live when you followed your sinful desires. You were by nature deserving of wrath. You all were dead in your sins, deserving of God's wrath wrath because all had turned away you know almost no one if you ask them almost no one knows anybody who they think merits hell if you describe hell like that almost no one thinks they know anybody who ought to be there deserves that a recent study found that two-thirds of people think they'll probably be in heaven less than one percent of people think they might be in hell that's probably the acdc fans that's my guess the holdouts okay there, there may be hoping um And yet, and yet, you know why? It's because we do not understand the holiness and the glory 
of God. Isaiah, the prophet of God, a man of God. We're told in Isaiah chapter 6 that he has a vision of God. And it says this, in this vision, he sees God in all his glory and his holiness. And, and, and around the throne of God, um, it, it is said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he sees the holiness and the glory of God in a way he's never seen it before. And what does the man of God, Isaiah, say? He says, I'm, I'm a goner. I'm done. Woe is me. I am ruined. There's that word. Destroyed. I am destroyed. I am ruined. I have seen the holiness and the glory of God. And having seen that, my only conclusion about all myself is, as he says later in Isaiah, all my righteousness is as filthy rags to God. Even the best of me compared to the holiness of God is nothing but deserving of God's wrath. He says, woe is me when confronted with the holiness of God. I wonder how we would feel if we were in his shoes and saw what he saw. We would say the exact same thing. Woe is me. I have seen the glory of God. I am ruined. Revelation chapter 14 verse 10 describes hell as the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. This is the one other image that we see about God's judgment. It's depicted as a goblet full of wine which represents all of God's judgment on the sinfulness of man which he pours into a cup and then the wicked have to drink. God's wrath. And this is what's said in, in, in Revelation 14, that hell is the wine of God's fury which has been pulled full, full strength into the cup of his wrath. You know, I was thinking about that and then I was thinking about Jesus. After Jesus came to that supper with his disciples where he broke bread and he drank with them, we're told that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and he knew what was coming and he says, as he's praying to God his Father, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus was so overcome. Jesus was in such agony that it tells us other, other um, gospels that he actually sweat drops of blood. He was under so much agony to the point of death, we're told. Why? Why? It's because he saw the cup of God's wrath set before him because that's what the cross was. The cross was him receiving the cup of God's wrath, sinful man. And so he talks about this cup when he prays to the Father. He said, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. What cup is he talking about? He's talking about the cup of the fury of God. May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And on that cross, Matthew tells us, he records the final words of Jesus. 
Now the final words of Jesus were so, yeah, it's a tough message, I get it, it's hard. Others of you are feeling the same way, I know. The final words of Jesus, according to Matthew, I mean, it, it was so, it was so raw and emotional that he doesn't even translate it into the Greek like he does the rest of the words. He keeps it in, in the tongue in which Jesus spoke. And he tells us that the final words of Jesus on the cross are, Jesus cries, cries out to God, Aloy, Aloy, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, as he's dying on the cross, as he's drinking this cup, what's happening? He looks up to heaven, and what does he see? His father is gone. That's what hell is. It's the absence of God. For all eternity past, God the Son and God the Father have had this, this the, the deepest intimate relationship that you and I cannot fathom, but in that moment when he drinks the cup of God's wrath, on sin, he looks up to his father and says, he's forsaken me, he's not there. It was utter blackness. As Jesus experiences the agony of hell on the cross, shut out from the presence of his father. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us so that we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God through him. You know what he's saying? He's saying God wasn't fair. God is not fair. This is not fair. He who knew no sin on the cross becomes sin and he drinks the cup of God's fury. So those of us to whom that cup belonged might become righteous. The righteousness of God. That's not, any amens here? You with me? This is a good point to say thank you, Jesus. He drinks the cup of God's wrath so that for us, there would be nothing but a cup of love. A cup of no condemnation for us. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, you were dead in your sins, you were deserving of God's wrath, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, even while we were dead, made us alive in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved through faith in him. Because of God's great love, God isn't fair at all. He's way more than fair. In his love for us, Jesus took the cup so that he could leave us another cup. Not a cup of God's wrath, but a cup of God's love. Which is what we're gonna drink here in a moment together. It's a cup for all who trust in Jesus. I want you to take this cup and if, and if, you, if you trust in Jesus and if you're, the desire of your heart is is, is, is the desire to know God and to love God and receive the lordship of Jesus, then, then as you take this cup, I want you to look at the cup and I want you to notice that this is not a cup of wrath. 
I want you to thank God in your heart that Jesus has drank that cup so that you could drink this cup, a cup of his love, a cup of his blood, and there is no condemnation for those in him. So I want to invite the, the servers to come and join me at this table. And for those of you who hear this message and, and you think, well, maybe you're not moving in a Godward direction. Maybe, maybe you're not living with if you're honest, the, the, the knee of your heart does not bow to God, does not bow to Jesus Christ. All of Jesus said is, is for us to be smelling salts, saying, wake up, wake up, because if you keep going in this direction, this is the end result. Wake up before it's too late. See the love of God, what he has, how he has lavished it on us in Jesus and receive the free gift of grace through turning from our own dependence and depending fully on what God has done for us in Jesus, repenting of our sins and confessing him as Lord of our life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we are deserving of nothing but wrath. We, saw, we fall so short of your glory, so short of your intentions for us. And yet, in your love for us, you came. And even though there was no judgment for you, you knew no sin, you took that cup and you drank it to the very last drop. And you were forsaken by your Father and you entered, you entered utter blackness so that for us who deserve the wrath of God, that there could be life, forgiveness, liberation. I thank you. Jesus, for the sacrifice of your body and your blood. Lord, that all we have to do is just depend on you. Turn to you in repentance and submit ourselves to your Lordship as Lord and Savior of our life. We thank you, Father, that uh, in your Son, Jesus, there is no condemnation for our sins. And Just pray, Father, that all of us now, whatever we wherever we are, whatever direction we're heading, that today, Lord, today our knee would bow and we would turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.